Welcome to our first episode of Harvest, a podcast following a four days experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet. Culture is not a one-way street down. I mean, go to the Mamos and the Kogi, for example. In 1974, when I first lived with them, the parents of my friends in Bogota would say, Por qué quiere vivir con la gente sucia? Why do you want to live with the dirty people? Now the last seven Colombian presidents, their first act of office, before inauguration, they've gone to the Mamos to pay homage to the wisdom and to seek their protection for their presidencies. The world keeps changing. I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona, and this episode is an interview made in Caplancaya of Wade Davis, the famous professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Wade wrote more than 20 books. His work has taken him to Tibet, Africa, Australia, Polynesia. He spent over three years in the Amazon and Andes as a plant explorer. The National Geographic Society named him as one of the explorers for the millennium. In Kaplankaya, Wade made a great speech about the sacred, sharing colorful pictures that he had taken during his trips. My first question to him was about his favorite ritual. I think the important thing about ritual is, is how it exists on a metaphorical level. If you're raised in France, say, to believe that a mountain is just a pile of rock, you're going to have a different relationship to it than if you're raised in the southern Andes of Peru to believe that a mountain is an apu deity that will direct your destiny. It's not about who's right and who's wrong, but the belief system has consequences, particularly in terms of the ecological footprint of the society. And in the small community of Chinchero, right outside of Cusco, which tragically has been deeply affected by a misguided development of a new airport for Cusco, which is right in the traditional lands of Chinchero. But it has been a remarkably traditional community, even during the era of, of the Spaniards. It never had major sort of haciendas imposed upon it. It still has sort of the social structure of the Incaic era, with three moieties, which sounds odd, but one of them was a group moved into the area by the Inca. It was the site of the summer palace of Topa Inkiupanqui, the second of the great Inca rulers. There were only three. The Incan Empire was less than 100 years old when it collapsed in the wake of the Spanish conquest. But in that community, once each year, the fastest young boy in every hamlet is given the honor of becoming a woman. And he puts on the clothing of his mother or his sister and he becomes known as a wailaka, which in Quechua is a pejorative term for a woman who doesn't look after her family. But that boy, now dressed as a woman, has to lead all the able-bodied men of the village on a run. But it's not your ordinary run. You start off in the ancient Incaic plaza at about 11,500 feet, uh, and then you run down about 2,000 feet to the base of the sacred mountain, which is called Antikilka and then you run to 16,000 feet, and then you fall away toward the sacred valley, and then you cross two more soaring Andean ridges over the course of a long ceremonial day. And the metaphor is that the Wailaka is carrying the essence of the feminine to the mountaintop, and the run itself um, covers the circumference of the community lands, which are marked by itos, or piles of 
dirt, those boundary markers where the wailaka must spin, where coca leaves are given to Pachamama, where libations of alcohol to the wind. And the metaphor is that you go into the mountain as an individual, but through sacrifice which and exhaustion, which in Latin sacrifice means to make sacred, you kind of emerge into a single community pulse that once again has affirmed its sense of ownership, but also its sense of fidelity and duty to the land itself. And at the age of 48, I became the only outsider, the oldest man ever to run the movimiento. And I, I swear I only got through the day by chewing more coca leaves in one day than anyone had chewed in the 8,000-year history of the plant. But actually, what really carried me through, and I trained you know, with an African-American boxer in a gym in Washington, D.C. for six months to be able to make this run. I had, over the years, baptized so many children and you know, becoming their godfather. And uh, that's, that's really, in the Andes, that's a reciprocal relationship between the, the families. And so you, by becoming a padrino, you're actually taking on the obligation to educate the children and for their moral well-being. It's a very important economic tie, you know, to the family. And all my little ahados, when they heard that their padrino was stupid enough to run the movimiento at the age of 48, they came out from the villages and they stuck to me like I was a Pied Piper, and they weren't going to let anything happen to their family's cash cow, if you know what I mean. You know, it was very <laughs> sweet. But at the very height of the race, um, the community elders stopped the race uh, to formally adopt me into the community because I, I don't think any of them thought that I would actually complete it. You know, a number of Peruvian friends tried to do it with me and they just, they fell away within minutes. You know. When you talked about the sacred, it's a lot of metaphors, as you said. Nowadays, people get a bit uh, distanced from the religion. Do you think we're struggling with the metaphors in our uh, modern days? Well, I, th I think this really touches on the heart of the matter, is that when we, when we ask ourselves, you know, what is it that really... We use this term indigenous people, and it's, it's a term that's general to the point of inutility. I mean, we're all indigenous to planet Earth. It really doesn't, you know, it doesn't really have a lot of meaning anymore. But we can clearly uh, see a distinction between the way that, say, Western civilization, for lack of a better word, the Western paradigm, what we know to be the modern Western experiment, views the natural world from the way that most cultures seem to around the world. And the difference really goes back, I think, to Descartes. You know, when we tried quite legitimately and, and almost essentially, and this was the birth of modernity, to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute faith in Western Europe, And Descartes comes along and says, all that exists is mind and material. In a single sort of phrase, he deanimated the world, and to the point where Saul Bellow would say, science made a house cleaning of belief. And as we swept away magic and mysticism, we also swept away metaphor. And so the idea that the flight of a bird could have meaning was ridiculed, right? And at the same time, we liberated the individual from the collective. And that was kind of the sociological equivalent of splitting the atom. I mean, you don't think twice. You just described to me before we started the podcast the seven incredible corners of the world where you and your wonderful family had lived. Well, think of how unusual that is, you know, the history of, of humanity. And so I think that that really, one of the things, when we gave up metaphor, and the world became deanimated, the world became just a stage set upon which the human drama unfolded. And, and as a result of that, if we see ourselves in an inanimate space, a mountain's just a pile of rock. 
you know, a forest is just cellulose and board feet. And so, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the west coast of British Columbia, you know, I was a logger. You know, I, I was cutting down trees that you just couldn't believe, the cathedrals we were cutting down. And we didn't really think that much about it, right? It was just, it was work. And yet, my friends in the Kwakwakawak, or the Haida, or, or the Nishka, or the Taltan, or the Nuchan, you know, they saw those forests as the, as the abode of Hukuk, in the case of the Kwakwakawak, and of Hukuk and the crooked beak of heaven, and the cannibal spirits that they would have to embrace during the Hamat's initiation so that all could bring order to the world, right? Well, it's not a surprise that the way they thought about the world allowed them to live with the most modest of ecological footprints for thousands of years. And it's not surprising that the way I was taught to think about the forest led to their destruction in two generations. And so metaphor really has a consequence. And so when we look around the world, we actually see that most societies base their fundamental relationship with the natural world not on extraction, but on reciprocity. You know, some basic iteration of something kids learn you know, in school. The earth owes its bounty to us, but we in turn therefore owe our fidelity to the earth. Now that sounds like almost something you'd teach a child in kindergarten, but it's actually a pretty profound notion. And it plays out in very specific ways. The Barasana, the Makuna, peoples of the Northwest Amazon of Colombia, in a way their most profound cultural intuition is the absolute conviction that plants and animals are just people in another dimension of reality. Well, what does it mean to say, is that true or not? It doesn't matter. If you believe that, it's going to make for a different kind of person. Um, the Kogi, the Arawakos, the Wiwa, of the Sierra Nevada, the Santa Marta in Colombia, 500 years after the conquest, uh, society still dominated by ritual priesthoods, the training for which is extraordinary. And they literally believe that their prayers and, and, and uh, rituals maintain the cosmic balance of the world. And this is something that you see in cultures all around the world. I mean, it sometimes becomes almost um, glib because not, not all indigenous people, not all human beings, not all cultures are eloquent. And so you might have someone come up to a podium and say, the earth is our mother. And you may think that that came from the back of a cereal box, you know, kind of a cliche. That's what pe they think, you know. But what I've tried to do in my work is is to go to the cultures where their practices and beliefs demonstrate that conviction as opposed to w words accounting for it, if you know what I mean. And when you do that and you, you suddenly see that there are all these capabilities of the human spirit that we don't give much thought to, right? And I think this comes back to this really, what I still think is the greatest revelation of our lifetimes. It's come from genetics, you know, that, you know, we, genetics has shown that we're all one, right? And that mean, the, the critical significance of that is that if we're all of the same genetic stock, we all share the same genius by definition. And wait, in a world of globalization, how do we protect this culture, our heritage? Well, we protect it by honoring it and giving them back the land. I mean, it's as simple as that. You know, first of all, we don't preserve anything. You know, we preserve jam, but not culture. Cultures are always changing. They're always dancing with new possibilities for life. You know, we have this sort of conceit, even those of us who are very sympathetic with the plight of indigenous people, that they're somehow quaint and colorful but destined to fade away as if by natural laws, if they're failed attempts at keeping up with history, failed attempts at being modern, nothing could be further from the truth. Technology 
is no threat to culture. You know, the, the, the French rural farmer in Provence did not stop being French when he gave up the horse and buggy in favor of the du chevaux. And technology is not a threat to culture. And change is no threat to culture. Provence today, your grandfather's, I mean, you're no closer to your grandmother than we change through time. My, my, my grandfather would not recognize the world in which I live, obviously, right? And, and, and his values um, I would never endorse. But what is a threat to culture is power. It's always power, you know, and that can be industrial, it can be military, but critically it can be ideological, you know. In other words, it can be the ubiquitous cult of the modern, which we all know is sort of spreading around the world. And once you realize that, that people are destined to fade away, but they're being driven out of existence, that's kind of an optimistic observation, because if human beings are in fact the agents of cultural destruction, we can be the facilitators of cultural survival. And a lot of this does come down to land. I mean, when I first went to the Northwest Amazon, for example, of Colombia in 1974, it felt like a very sad place, you know, where important things had happened a long time ago. But if you, then something remarkable happened. In 1985, the president of Colombia, Virgilio Barco, said to a friend of mine, Martin van Hildebrand, just casually, in the middle of the country in violence, and Escobar was still alive. He was just ascendant, in fact do something for the Indians. And in five incredible years, Martin, as um, uh, the head of Asuntos Indígenas, did more than, more than something. He secured legal land tenure to an area of land that's collectively the size of the United Kingdom for the 57 ethnicities of the Northwest Amazon of Colombia. Land rights that were secured in the 1991 Constitution and then behind a veil of isolation created by the conflict in Colombia, a whole new dream of culture was reborn. And I remember going, we, made it, we were making a film on the Piraparana, which is a very remote part of that region. And Stephen Hugh Jones, who had been head of anthropology at Cambridge, and he had lived with the Barasana going back to the 1960s. And he had predicted a, in a strand of BBC films called Disappearing Worlds, the cultural exhaustion of the Barasana. He came back while we were making this film. He walked into this longhouse, you know, with these massive structures, you know. And he saw 250 men and women in full ritual regalia in this incredible two-day ceremony. He got on his satellite phone to his wife, who had been with him in the forest in the 1960s, and says, Christine, nothing's disappeared. The only thing that's disappeared are the bloody missionaries, right? So culture is not a one-way street down. I mean, go to the Mamos and the Kogi, for example. In 1974, when I first lived with them, the parents of my friends in Bogota would say, ¿Por qué quiere vivir con la gente sucia? Why do you want to live with the dirty people? Now the last seven Colombian presidents, their first act of office, before inauguration, they've gone to the Mamos to pay homage to the wisdom and to seek their protection for their presidencies. The world keeps changing. There's always good and evil. But like my father said, pick your side, get on with it. And so you pick your side and you you know, continue to push and tell stories. And I felt the influence that my own voices had over the last 40 years, there's no question about it. You know, when I first started speaking about language loss in the 1990s, nobody was speaking about it, uh, with the exception of a few lone voices in the wild of the odd linguist, right? But because the hold that Noam Chomsky had on the linguistic discipline, um, the idea that dying languages were, or threatened languages were of significance was, was just not considered. Today, Wade Davis is a legend in Colombia. 
I have been a follower of Wade Davis for a while, not just because he's obsessed with Colombia, we're obsessed with him. That was Laura, a Colombian harvest participant. Wade's writing about the country prompted the former president, Juan Manuel Santos, to grant him honorary citizenship in 2018. I asked Wade how he decided to choose this exploration path and what the impact of his father, whom he often cites, had been. He inspired me by what he was not, answered Wade, who remembers an incredibly decent and generous man who didn't show that he had been broken by Hitler's war and never told his son that he had disappeared three years in London's underground during World War II. He never spoke about that, right? And he came back and you know, settled into a kind of bourgeois life in post-war Canada. Of course, that's the only life I knew of him, and it was so banal. And I definitely had Baudelaire's disease, horror of home. I wanted to escape a world that I saw to be problematic in terms of the way that women were treated, gay people were treated. I didn't really know about gay people at that point. I was so young. But just the environment, the war in Vietnam, whatever. And that's why I, I sort of started. I knew that to escape, I had to jump off cliffs. And uh, I did. And I mean, for the longest time, I only had one word in my vocabulary for any new experience, anything. And that was yes. And so that's how I really got out. Um, it was all crazy serendipity. You know, I went to, I went to Harvard because I, I, I came from a very modest background. I used to fight forest fires, and the fire camps were filled with these draft dodgers from Vietnam, the only work they could get. One of them had the Life magazine, and they would tell our bosses to piss off, which was very attractive to a young Canadian lad, because we never dared do that. And one of them had the Life magazine with the Harvard student strike of 1969, just after May 68 in France, you know. I thought, wow, that's got to be the school you go to to become cool like these guys. I had no idea what Harvard was, and I applied, I got in. Then I didn't, my parents sent me down on an airplane. I didn't know where it was. I saw this black guy with the Harvard t-shirt. I thought, he's got to know where it is. He didn't know either. <laughs> Then I dragged my trunk through the subway system, got to Harvard Square. It was this caravansary of madness, SDS and Harry Krishna and, you know, naked women. And then I realized my mother was made a mistake, and I was 10 days early, and there were no, the dorms weren't open yet. <laughs> so I dragged my trunk through Cambridge until I found a church, knocked on the door, pastor opened up, welcomed me in, that's when I fell in love with America. But he was a war resistor, and so his church was full of young kids about to flee to Canada, so I got totally radicalized. So I spent my first year at Harvard making trouble. I really made a lot of trouble. And the day that you had to declare what your academic major was, was the next day. And I hadn't given it a thought, not a thought. And by chance, I walked through the Peabody Museum of Ethnology and uh, for the first time. And I walked out in the street, and I ran into a, an acquaintance, and I said, Stuart, what are you going to major in tomorrow? He said, anthropology. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you read about Indians. And, I, and like Forrest Gump, I said, that'll do. <laughs> and that's how I signed on as anthropology. <laughs> and it's a true story. And then two, two years later, I was tired of just reading about Indians in books, as was my best friend. And we were in a cafe in Harvard Square. And there was a Mapamundi, a National Geographic map of the world. And David just looked at the map and looked at me, and he pointed to the Arctic. And I had to go somewhere. My hand lifted and hit the northwest Amazon of Colombia. If it had hit Italy or France, I might have become a Renaissance scholar. Incredible. But then, okay. having decided to go to the Amazon, there was one man to see, the legendary 
Richard Evan Schultes, the man who sparked the psychedelic era with the discovery of the magic mushrooms. And so I knocked on his fourth floor door. And this is a man you know, for whom mountains had been named in South America. And I just said, I've saved up money in a logging camp. I want to go to the Amazon and collect plants. He didn't ask me a single question. He just looked up from a mound of specimens through his antiquated bifocals and said, well, son, when do you want to go? <laughs> and two weeks later, I was in Colombia. I mean, that's how my life has unfolded. You're writing a book about coca, right? Yeah. What does the traditional way of using coca has to do with um, taking drugs today? Nothing whatsoever. Coca is to cocaine what potatoes are to vodka. I think I find the pollen of the plants here gives me a little bit of allergy or something. It's, it's a fascinating story. Cocaine was the second drug extracted from a plant. Morphine was the first. In the late 19th century, cocaine was seen as a sort of a panacea. And it became clear, including, including for the treatment of morphine addiction, and it became clear the treatment was as bad as the disease, and cocaine became, went from being, you know, the drug of choice of the Pope, you know, everybody, to being this sort of this demonized drug. But in, missing in all of that is that whereas opium can be addictive, coca, the source of cocaine, is not only not addictive, there's been no evidence of toxicity for over 10,000 years. Curiously, the efforts to eradicate the traditional fields began 50 years before there was a cocaine problem. You know, physicians in Lima in the 1920s looked up into the mountains and saw illiteracy, poor sanitation, various so social pathologies, and they had to settle on a cause. And their concern for Andean people was matched in its intensity only by their ignorance of Andean life. And since issues of economic justice and equity, land distribution, land reform, came too close to challenging the bourgeois roots of their own lives in Lima, they settled on coca as the demon source of all. And so the efforts really had nothing to do with cocaine hydrochloride and everything to do with the cultural identity of those who revered the plant. And this, this had a long history. I mean, the Spanish, in, in, at the time of the conquest, it made, made coca, like all important objects or um, plants of the Inca, illegal. But then in 1575, I think it was, or 72, Toledo made coca legal because the Indians wouldn't work the mines without it. And then coca actually became the economic foundation of the Spanish Empire in Peru for 200 years, right? But in all that time, no one did a nutritional study of the plant until we did it in 1975. And what we found horrified our backers of the US Department of Agriculture that had sponsored our research because we found that the plant had, yes, a small amount of cocaine in it, absorbed very differently than, absorbed benignly through the mucous membrane, but also a, a kind of analog of cocaine very different than what you get as a salt, the cocaine hydrochloride on the illicit market. But, but this mild stimulant, useful in a harsh environment, um, was augmented by a slew of vitamins. In other words, if you chew coca leaves, you're getting every day your requirement for vitamins across the board. It also had calcium, more calcium in it than any plant ever studied by science, which made it perfect for the traditional diet that lacked a dairy product. It even had enzymes, which enhanced the body's ability to digest carbohydrate at high elevation. So coca was not just a sacrament. Um, nutrition. It, it, nutrition. And, and again, it's not like we, we are suggesting that 
coca can substitute for food as much as we were saying, not only is not, this not a dangerous plant, it's a nutritional plant. And more importantly, is it's absolutely vital to the cultural well-being. You know, you can take beer away from the British, and you can take betel nut away from the Indonesians, and you can take tea away from the Indians. Uh, but to take coca is an act of cultural genocide because of the way the plant is involved in every aspect of ritual life. And, you know, if cocaine is a sort of jagged assault to the, the senses, and ultimately a drug of, of ego and delusional self-aggrandizement, coke is meditation. It's about reciprocity. You, know, you meet someone on the trail in the Andes, you don't trade, uh, uh, shake hands, you, or you trade leaves. You know, you to connect. To connect. It's a form of social connection. But then as you, if I meet you on the trail, you will give me three perfect leaves, like a little crusetta. I will then give you one, and then you will blow your breath to the sacred mountain. And the idea is the energy of the leaves are being sent to the mountain, just as the clouds gather to precipitate the rain that gives fertility to the soils. I mean, to be a human in the Andes, in the, the culture, of the Rumisina, you know, the people of the Andes, you have to use coca. I mean, distance is measured not in kilometers, but in cocadas, how many coca chews, you know. So, you know, we've been studying, I've been studying coca since the 1970s, but now's the time to create a legal nutraceutical market for the coca leaves, basically to de decouple coca from cocaine and generate the revenue for Colombia in particular to allow that nation to pay the cost of peace, having drained its treasury for 50 years to pay the sordid costs of prohibition, a war that would not have lasted one day without the illicit black market trade in cocaine. This is why I hate cocaine so much, and also why I hate cocaine users. I don't hate them, but I just get furious. Everybody you've ever met in Barcelona, Montreal, Miami, and all the glass-clad towers of the world, everybody you've ever met who's even thought of using cocaine has the blood of innocent Colombians in their hands. 260,000 dead, 7 million internally displaced, 5 million forced to leave their country, 100,000 kidnapped and disappeared, all because of cocaine. The last year of the Peace, before the peace agreement, the FARC were down to maybe 6,000 cadre, mostly kids in search of four meals a day. And yet they made $600 million through extortion and cocaine trafficking. You, you give me the Boy Scouts of Barcelona and $600 million, and I can wreak havoc in all of Catalonia. How would Americans feel if Canada had patterns of drug consumption in bars and boardrooms across the country? laws that made possible the black market trade, but sanctions that did nothing whatsoever to curb that trade, such that 85 million Americans would be forced out of their homes. Well, that's what happened to Colombia. And so what we need to do is help Colombia pay the cost of peace. The, the peace agreement had 578 clauses to it, $45 billion, right at the time when oil prices dropped. Two million refugees pouring into Colombia to escape the regime of Maduro. What's happening on the Mexican border? The Americans are putting mothers and children in cages, right, who come up from Central America, disrupted by the same cocaine trade and the legacy of America's foreign intervention in the 1980s in those Central American countries. And does Colombia put the Venezuelans in jail? No. They welcome them, they house them, they feed them, they give medical care, put their kids in school, and even give them overnight, everybody, the right to work in Colombia. No country's been so generous, so it's time the world became a little bit more generous with Colombia.
It's time for the great harvest of the day in Kaplankaya. If something could be done easily and would make the world a better place, what would it be for Wade Davis? Simply recognizing the revelations of genetics. Um, the scientists, men and women, to whom we owe so much and, and, and with whom we give so much of our faith and confidence, have actually told us something wonderful. They've proven, proven in our lifetimes that race is an utter fiction. They've shown that we're all brothers and sisters, that we all really are a one people, all descendants of African ancestors, all descendants of those who stayed in Africa and those who walked out of Africa 65,000 years ago to bring the human spirit to every corner of the habitable world. And if we recognize that, that we're all connected, it also means that every society shares the same genius. And how that is expressed is simply a matter of choice and orientation. There is no hierarchy in the realm of culture. That old Victorian idea that we have to put to bed and kill is the idea that we somehow went from, in an evolutionary sense, from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized of France, you know, with London sitting at the apex of a pyramid that goes down the slopes to the cold savages of the world. Well, that idea that was so current in the 19th century is as irrelevant to our lives today as a notion of clergymen in that distant century who believed with all sincerity and, and certainty that the earth was but 6,000 years old. You know, in the stunning affirmation of the human spirit, science has proven it to be true. The insights of all philosophers, all sages, all holy men and women through all time who have intuited the obvious that human beings are as one. And if somehow that can get beyond the literature and into the actual zeitgeist of the consciousness of humanity, in the same way, perhaps, that the vision of the Earth from space that only came to us in 1968, when I was already a young teenager, if, if, and that vision of the Earth from space has transformed everything, if only this revelation of genetics could be seen and have the same influence then I think it would be at least, at the very least, a positive step forward for all of humanity. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Wade Davis' stories about rituals, how he became an anthropologist and coca leaves. If you did, please leave us a good review. And until next time... <laughs>